It's um, probably before anything else Adventist, before the name Seventh-day Adventist, before the General Conference, before the health message and sanitariums, before, well, before even the Sabbath day as a belief or as an experience, before haystacks and cottage cheese loaf. So go way back now. Before anything else, Adventist, almost, there were the three angels from Revelation chapter 14. Do you know those three angels from your childhood church where you grew up? Because where I grew up, they were on the wall in the front of the sanctuary. This one from the Union College Church and all of these from Adventist churches around mostly our country. Did some of you have those where you grew up? Not much of anything else, but the three angels made it on the wall or in a bulletin or on the, the stationery from the church. The, the messages from the three angels are pretty precious to Adventist Christians. If some of you visiting today are new to Adventist Christianity, or if you're new to the Calamasa Church, I hope this won't sound like jargon today, but we're talking about something that's been with us since the beginning these three angels. The last one, these, these three angels stand outside of our headquarter office here in Riverside, and, and it's the job of someone who works there in Riverside to sort of shave the three angels and make sure that they look good. You'll see them coming up. I have seen these three shrubs. <laughs> when they looked more like the beasts than the angels... When they have bad hair weeks, um, they don't look so angelic. These grace the, the lawn and our headquarters office in Riverside. The three angels are everywhere from the beginning of Adventist Christianity. I studied with a woman several years ago, a Catholic woman contemplating becoming an Adventist Christian, and she finally asked me after several weeks, why is your sanctuary so bare? What's up with the white walls? She was missing what she had appreciated in her own tradition when she came in to see these pieces of beauty that caused her to worship. And, and finally, after a while, when we developed a relationship, she said, well, you're just whitewashed, white-walled Adventists. But one day she said to me, now wait, how did those little three angels make the final cut? You can't have Jesus on a cross but you can have those three angels, she asked. The three angels from the 14th chapter, the book of Revelation. I knew when we were only going to spend seven weeks in this book, isn't that a good number? I knew that these angels would make the final cut. What I hope you'll do is spend time during the week reading what we're missing in between. In particular, what we missed between last week and this week is vital. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 have to be read as a unit. If you were here last week, we were at this throne room scene, two witnesses, two human beings around the throne, martyred, killed, resurrected, and we found that human witness has been more powerful than anything else up to this point in the book of Revelation. The humans matter. But since last week, the lens has kind of gone both directions in the revelator's vision. In heaven, another vision 
these three angels flying through the air. And what we won't read today in chapter 12, there's a woman clothed in a white garment and she's giving birth to a son. And, and it's the kind of dramatic vision that Matthew, Mark, Luke could never have written, but it is that same manger story. A woman giving birth flashed across the sky and a dragon waiting to swallow the baby and not successful. And, and so the dragon makes war on the woman. And you recognize this theme from Genesis at the beginning of our Bibles, where the serpent makes war on the human race. And the dragon calls for his colleagues, and there's another beast and another beast, and, and they've made war on the human race. The stage is set for a tremendous battle. That's what happens in chapters 12 and 13. And it matters that we know that. Many things there we don't get to study as like when the dragon falls from heaven after trying to devour this baby. The text says he goes down. And, and in the original language it reads wonderfully. He goes down, down, down. While the baby is where? It's beautiful conversations set the stage for where we are today. Now here are these three angelic beings flying across the sky, and they, they have a message because they can see both. They have dual vision. They know that earth cannot see what's happening in heaven. And they know there's this power of the dragons and the war that's been waged, and, and they know what earth and humans push against. And they know that the humans can't see. And so here they come with a heralding message. We'll begin today in chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night. Make note. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for the patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. That last word, right, blessed are those dead in the Lord. Yes, they'll rest, their deeds will follow them. Nicely translated, nothing they have done has gone wasted. It has built up the kingdom. What words on a day like today when, when we have to say goodbye to someone, Betty, who's fallen asleep? Blessed are those who fall asleep, have fallen asleep in the Lord. 
three angels cry with one continuous message, not three. We have to read them all together with the lens fixed on heaven and with a lens fixed on earth. We can summarize. It isn't difficult to know what the message is. The first message, fear God, give glory, the hour of judgment has come. The second message, fallen, fallen is Babylon, it's going down. It's going down. The third angel, so get out, you'll need to make a decision. It matters. If you're going to follow the beast, make a choice. The message of these angels has not changed. It remains a wake-up call. I was a little irritated in the news this week when I saw Madonna, of all people, announce that she's giving the nations a wake-up call. While I tried to reserve judgment, I watched the interview. Interesting people. She's giving us a wake-up call because there's AIDS in Africa, and she's taking the teachings of Jesus and, and letting the world know, you need to wake up and do something. Isn't that... Who's giving the world a wake-up call? Not the patient saints who keep the commandments? Revelation 14 has always been, will always be a wake-up call like no other kind in our Bibles, unique for its intensity, unique for what it announces. Nothing has changed about that. And as a young Adventist uh, beginning community in our early days, our our spiritual mothers and fathers, they understood with their Bibles open that this message mattered for us as a movement. With their Bibles open, and when you read their original accounts in, in their correspondence, you see them wrestle with the text. You see them read first, second, third angel and try to locate themselves and their movement right in the middle of the text. So it is, leading up to the days and months and years of 1844, they decided the three angels are calling us to a judgment. Something is going to happen. Oh, 1844, something is going to happen. And then 1844 comes and goes, and they say, no, it's a judgment of another kind in a heavenly realm. And, and, and they wrestle a little more, and they say, but it's not only that, because by 1846, two years later, they now understand about the Sabbath. And, and so they go back to the first angel's message, fear God and give him glory, your creator. Keep all the commandments. Ah, oh, now we know about the Sabbath, and they keep moving a little bit more. And, and by 1851, they have a few precious beliefs of their own. And so the third angel says, call them all out of Babylon. Make sure they all get out, those people who aren't believing things the correct way. And we can watch our, our, herit our heritage, our, our mothers and fathers, we can watch them wrestle and, and locate themselves. And when God doesn't come, Habakkuk 2, verse 3 they claim for their own when they say, for the vision from Revelation is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and won't speak a lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. And, and the tarrying time begins for Adventist Christians. Not even called Adventists yet. The tarrying time, the vision will happen. It won't be a lie. And as they wrestle with it, listen to these words from James White. In the letter he writes in 1848, he says, Yes, here it is, right here, our little despised band of our little company. We stand here with the warning. Oh, how glad I am, he says, to know my whereabouts. They found themselves in Revelation 14. 
Yes, never was there a people whose position was so plainly marked out in the word as ours. We know where we stand, brothers and sisters, James White says. And he thanks the person for sending a $1 offering, which will do much for God's work. I open the text today 160 years later, 160 years after that interpretation, which I've outlined for you. And I ask myself and I ask us as a congregation and, and denominationally, do we know our whereabouts today? Do we know where we stand now? Have we, with that open Bible, wrestled and struggled like our ancestors to locate ourselves in this most important message from Revelation chapter 14? Where are we? Do we know where we are 160 years later? What is the message? How urgent is it? There are some not meeting with us here and all around the world because they believe that our sense of urgency is eroding. They believe in particular that this third angel, the somehow printed in bold for many people, this need to call people out, that, that somehow we're not paying attention and there's not an urgency. Here's how I've been answering the urgency question for myself. 160 years later, is this still urgent? It is urgent to me because I have only this generation. You have only this time. It's very much like parenting. We get this shot. We don't get to do it again. I have this time and this place with you and us together to think about what this means. So that's urgency, isn't it? I don't have tomorrow. I don't have 20 and 30 years promised to me. So there is an urgency, indeed, we would agree. But then what is the message what is the thing we're to say today, 160 years later? Do we know where we've been at home for 160 60 years? Do we know? When we traveled to Portland in September to help my husband's parents, they need to move out of this property. We, all we needed to do that morning was find the septic tank. Now, not so many of us dig our own septic tanks around here, but in Oregon, you do. They've been on this property more than 30 years, and my father-in-law said, I know where the septic tank is. I, I was here when they dug it. Happened right under my nose. This is a very good thing. And, and, and he said, you know, all you have to do is stand at the garage and walk out about 30 feet, and it's going to be there. And you're supposed to know because you just stick a shovel in the ground, and we're going to hit metal. So we put Grandpa in a chair in the driveway because he can't stand for so long. He's very weak, and, but, but, and he doesn't talk so well anymore after his stroke. But, but he was pointing at his son, and we had almost no tools but a, whole, a pole digger. Is that what you call it? To, to put a post down in the ground. That's what we're digging with. There's no shovels on the property. But he sits in his chair, and he points to Kirby right out there. And that's right out there. We, we got the hose and made the grass wet because it was so hard from the long summer. And, and when that hole wasn't successful, Brent will show you what happened next. Grandpa sits in the chair and says, well, maybe just three feet that way. Well, no, I was here. No, maybe. And he begins to look at the house and measure back out. No, Kirby, go a little that way. Now, no, now, come in a little closer. And as you look at the last shot, I did, we didn't even count holes. I think there are 14 holes we dug. 
This is so we can save $200. Because <laughs> the septic people are coming tomorrow, and if we could just tell them where the tank is. I was here. I knew where they put that tank. He kept saying, I should have known, I should have known. And you know where they found it, right between two holes. We've been at home in this faith tradition for 160 years. We know the message, right? Does someone have to tell us? Can we say it? Can we articulate it to one another? What is the message from these three angels? What is it all about? Has it changed over 160 years, or do we keep saying the things we said in 1851? These are questions I ask when I open the book and study myself. They're questions I invite you to ask. As I study, I am drawn, first of all, back to the first angel, not the third, but the first. When the first angel flies through the air, he does give a judgment, but as I say, an hour of judgment is coming, but before that he says, fear God and give glory worship the creator and it is very much like laodicea i feel myself being pulled back to the first love conversation fear god worship god there is a creator up there the first angel says to me that more loudly and and i wonder over the the time period, the time that's elapsed here, as we've been so clear about the day of the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments as they're attached to these messages, that for sure the, the most certain message coming out of the voice of the first angel has been worship on the Sabbath day. I am wondering that if we've lost something about the way we worship, not just the day we worship. Fear God and give him glory. What a timely message in our contemporary world to shout, we have a creator. And you know the conversations in the scientific world, in the secular world, to be a movement saying, no, we have a creator and this is our creator. We know this God. This is the God we bow before every day. To worship the creator means we stand before this God and say, we give up. We're not going to work like those who worship the beast. We will rest in front of you. We understand where we came from. We're going to put it down, and we're going to acknowledge you in our lives. It is interesting in that first angel's message, we are not told, like in the great gospel commission, go and make disciples. In the first angel's message, we don't go. The angel goes. Isn't that interesting? We are commanded the first time and the only time in the book of Revelation to worship. To stand before a God and say, I am totally dependent upon you. Not just Saturday. Sunday through Sabbath. Can the world learn something about a people who have that position? I see next, after I look at this first angel, this Babylon term. Come out of her, come out of her. Babylon is falling. Something is going down and, and you don't want to be a part of it. Babylon, which starts and finds its origins in the Tower of Babel where people are reaching up to heaven and, and trying to control that power and bring the heavenly power within their own grasps. Babylon, the beast, the devil, 
evil, everything that is the opposite of Christ, whenever you read any of that language in Revelation, the mark, the numbers, it all means the same thing, that which is standing opposite to God and Jesus. And I look at this word Babylon, and I wonder, I wonder if we can get a little more honest today about the beastly qualities among us instead of always out there. In 1896, Ellen White writes from Korenbong in a correspondence, don't believe it was published in a book, as time goes on, we will have less and less to say about Rome and the papacy, which we have always understood to be the beast, Babylon, the false prophet, all that was bad in Revelation. And she says, as time goes on, we'll have less and less to say about this. She doesn't say, and we'll have more and more to say about what? Which makes me so curious. Less to say than more to say about what? She, she doesn't say because that is for us to stand today with our Bibles open and do, isn't it? Less to say about Babylon out there. Maybe more to say about where do those beastly qualities, that grabbing for power, that, that hoarding and that consuming, when and where do they sometimes wiggle into your life and my life and, and into our church? Where in our history has the church felt a little more special than it should have? May I say that? We are called to a mission much grander than feeling special. I also see this everlasting gospel back in the first angel, this good news, this message. This is the content and the core of the message. The everlasting gospel is to go out. Do we know what that is? Can we articulate that? Do we have to be reminded of that? Do I find myself wondering, but what is it? When I took this last flight in October, we crossed the international date line at some point, and the pilot came over the speaker system and said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd just like you to know we crossed the international date line just now. Welcome to tomorrow. <laughs> Mr. Johnson in 12C, it's now your anniversary. Please call home when we land. <laughs> I don't know who had connections with the pilot, but apparently Mr. Johnson needed to be told. <laughs> did he forget? What did his wife think? He wouldn't remember. Phone home. It's our special day. Do we know the everlasting gospel, this good news? Is it, is it such so much your experience and so much my experience? And is it, is it what we live every day? No one has to tell us what it is. Are we able to say it in language and in ways? Are we able to live it so that it's identifiable in our world? It's the question that I have 160 years later. My goodness, not the everlasting gospel that makes sense in Thailand and in Kenya. We don't live there, do we? Where the church seems to be growing. We live here where the church seems to be doing what? Sleeping, people say. What is the language I need for the everlasting gospel to make sense in my world? It's been 13 years since Dr. Jack Provancha 
made a suggestion in his book, A Remnant in Crisis. Thirteen years, and I don't think much has changed in 13 years. He says, I believe in this church. I want very much for it to succeed in its mission. I am also worried about it. The Revelation 14 message has been our special message, he says. A prophet's reason for being is its message. No message, no prophet. It's the same for our church. No message, no church. No message, no movement. A movement has to have something to say, and the message must be a maturing message, he suggests. It should not sound as it sounded 160 years ago. We don't stand where we stood 160 years ago. The content, the everlasting gospel, has not changed. But we ought to have become more committed to it, more passionate about it, and have found ways to express it that make sense in our world. I sort of like the spunky way he writes. I want to, I want to continue. He says, we're not the only show in town. <laughs> the people who listen to presenters are no longer persuaded because someone can stand up and prove it from the Bible. It used to be that an evangelist would open a Bible and persuade you from the truth how this was the true church. The only question at the end was, where do I sign up? This is not our world anymore. In those generations, people expected to Jesus to come while they were alive. We have to take seriously our place in a world that's changing so fast, as I say, you need a teenager to keep up. I don't know what's happening in my world until I ask my daughters how to work something and what, what's next. That's how quickly our world is changing. Everyone else is catching on, and sometimes I wonder, will we be the last ones? When we go to the polls on Tuesday, it is because we have been the targets of micro-targeting. They've been been paying attention to what we buy and where we shop and what we eat and what we read. And is it television or cable? Is it U.S. News and World Report or a tabloid? Is it this soda pop or that wine? Is it the list goes on and on and on? What kind of a car you drive and, and if I buy organic produce or not? micro-targeting. They've taken it seriously. What they're hoping is that they can craft a message that will make me, force me, come out on Tuesday and vote, taking seriously the world in which we live. How do they get us to come out? They take it seriously. So it is. We need to live in this reality, not the reality of 1851. We'll have to get clear on what our real message is. The pastoral staff spent time in retreat Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, the beginning of the week, and, and we wrestled together. But what is our message? What is our mission as a church? Why are we here again? And if the five of us can't say it, the four of us can't say it, how do we expect anyone else to say it? We better get real clear on not only what the message is, but how we can say it in Yucaipa and Redlands and Riverside and Los Angeles. How can we say it to the educated scientist? How can we say it to the politically minded and savvy person? How can we say it to... How can we say it to a business person? How can we say it to atheists? How can we say it to the apathetic? How can we say it to the millionaires and to the the comfortable in our world? What is it we say now so these people would want to listen? This is our message, telling the truth about God. That part has never changed. 
What you see is what you share. That is all third three angels people are called to do. Tell the truth about God and tell it in a way that will make sense to the people listening to you. And if you don't happen to tuck in everything else that matters to us, all those doctrines and all those beliefs we've worked on, don't worry because did you see that the text told us that was our mission? Didn't it just say, worship God, give him glory. God's going to work out the rest, I believe that. getting real clear on the mission. I hope I never have to sit in a meeting in a room and hear someone say, I know we live in the last days because the Lisbon earthquake took place. How can we live in 2006 and that be our evidence? I hope I never sit in another room with a group of educators where they say, well, we're so worried for our children, they can't recite the sanctuary doctrine anymore. And I just want to scream, but can they tell you about God? Can they tell you about the good news of this creator who who brought us out of Egypt? If they can do that, we've done something. God's done something here. I hope I never have to be in a room with a child who thinks because they just ate meat, like I did when I was 10, accidentally, (laughs) that they think they're not part of the 144,000. Our special message, the content of it has never changed. Tell the truth about God. That's all we have to do. Tell it and make it clear. Revelation says the stage is being set. Now hang on because next week is the climax. It's like any battle scene you've ever read about, you've ever seen on screen, any story you've ever heard told. If you like westerns, this is the showdown at OK Corral. It's the Battle of Troy. It is Omaha Beach in World War II. It's the battle for Iwo Jima. This is King Peter and the White Witch in Narnia. It's Tolkien's final battle scene on Pelennor Fields. It's every kind and all kinds of decisive battles rolled into one, what we read now in Revelation. And all the messages is salvation and power and glory belong to the kingdom of God. And if you want that, make a decision. And if you don't, the beast is going down, down, down. In the Provencha tradition, let me close with a parable he used in class. Some of you have heard. There once were three peas who lived in a pod. They looked at each other and the walls of their pod, and they decided that the whole world was green. Summer slipped away and fall came and the pod split wide open. To their dismay, the peas discovered that not only was the whole world not green, it was mostly brown and some other shades of green they'd never seen. In panic, one of the peas took hold of the edges of the pod and and tried to pull it back closed so their world would stay green. A second piece slipped out of the pod and and became just as brown as he could, as fast as he could, so he would fit in and no one would notice. The third pea looked at the walls of the pod and he looked at that brown pea and the green world outside and he decided that his particular shade of green was precisely what the world needed. And as only Dr. Provancha could say, 
and that's the way it is. Are you sure about the message from Revelation chapter 14? If you're not, these kids will convince you.
confusion about what that message is. 
Did you hear it? Amen. And all of the church says, Amen. Steve, would you lead us in prayer? Would you bend your knee and bow your head with me? And repeat with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And in the words of Daddy, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.